The New York Times recently sent me a survey that seeks to identify the best novel of the last 125 years. Well, not just to me, but they sent it to thousands of readers of the New York Times Book Review. They already did round one and pared down the list from thousands of candidates to a top 25, unranked. Authors could only have one book on the list, so one book candidate per author. Now they want to let us choose the very best to rank order the list. We get to choose our top three. The list included what you would expect, 1984, Beloved, Catcher in the Rye, 100 Years of Solitude, Catch-22, etc. And some of the choices you might not expect, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, which was one of my top three choices. I was also happy to see Amor Toll's exquisitely crafted book, A Gentleman in Moscow, on the list. I interviewed him for some NPR stations a few years ago when it first came out. He was so kind and generous with his time and insights in that interview that I thought I'd share it with you, especially now that he has become a rock star in the literary world. His newest book, The Lincoln Highway, is also a blockbuster hit. Let's take a look first at how A Gentleman in Moscow was received. It remains a bestseller in many categories, including Russian historical fiction, as well as literary fiction in general. Here's what critics have said about A Gentleman in Moscow. Ann Patchett says this book is a salve. I think the world feels disordered right now. The Count's refinement and genteel nature are exactly what we're looking for. The New York Times Book Review. With this snappy period piece, Tolls resurrects the cinematic black-and-white Manhattan of the Golden Age. These characters are youthful Americans in tricky times trying to create authentic lives. Now, this book is not based in Manhattan. It's based in Moscow, but this particular review is referring to the golden age of black and white, and I agree. The book makes you feel like you've been pulled into a classic and wonderful Casablanca-type black and white movie. The San Francisco Chronicle says a gentleman in Moscow is laced with sparkling threads. They will be tied up. And tokens, they will matter. Special keys, secret compartments, gold coins, vials of colored liquid, old-fashioned pistols, duels and scars, hidden assignations, discreet and smoky, stolen passports, a ruby necklace, mysterious letters on elegant hotel stationery, a luscious stage set backdrop for a downright Casablanca-like theme. Well, here's my interview with Amer. Hope you find it as delightful as I did. Amer, welcome to the show. Well, let's talk about how this came to be. Uh, you're American, and yet you've written this Russian novel that uh, is, makes me think of Tolstoy. Yeah, well, the and I guess I'll, I'll say sort of quickly that the sort of the odd premise of the book is that it opens at a tribunal in the Kremlin in 1922 where a 30-year-old aristocrat is being interviewed. And in the course of this quick interview, it becomes clear that the Count, has, uh, who wrote a poem that was popular with the revolutionary generation, that he has some friends high up in the party, um, but he's clearly an unrepentant aristocrat. <laughs> and the tribunal views him as sort of a danger to society as a result. So almost as a compromise, they say he can go back to the Metropole Hotel where he's been staying, and if he ever comes out of the hotel again, he's going to be shot. Mm. And, you know, with the bang of the gavel, he's marched out of the Kremlin, across Red Square, into the 
this historic hotel, and that's really where the novel begins and, and where the Count stays for the next 30-plus years, and it's where I ask you, as the reader, to stay for the next 30-plus years. And, and I know that's not necessarily a very enticing invitation, um, so it's my job to make that a rich and entertaining experience um, for you. But, you know, why Russia? I, I'm a great fan of Russian literature, um, a fan of Russian history, of Russian culture, and when I years ago came up with sort of this crazy notion of a, writing a novel in which a man was trapped in a hotel, mm-hmm. Russia just seemed like the perfect place to do it. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> and you bring the whole world inside that hotel. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, I think that is the, the nature of the challenge. As an author, you, by, by really committing myself to tracking the life of my main character within the walls of the hotel almost entirely, um, I, I do have to ultimately reach out and bring the world in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in retrospect, I think, I'm not going to compare myself to Melville, uh, Herman Melville, who's a mm-hmm. great hero of mine, but Moby Dick, in a way, is, it's got the same problem. You know, the beginning of Moby Dick, you and Ishmael get on the Pequod with Captain Ahab, and you're stuck on the boat for the remainder of the book, you know, with a small group of men out at sea, mm-hmm. and Melville has to bring the world to you, and, and he does so in these very inventive ways. I obviously have the advantage that in a hotel, the world can come and go through the hotel, even as the Count cannot. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to see the, the movement of history uh, uh, outside the doors. He gets to interact with both the professionals in the hotel, the guests in the hotel, strangers, um, and he can find a richness in his life despite his confinement. Well, I have to tell you that one of the reasons I particularly related to this is I worked my way through college and graduate school working in hotels. And, okay. and I wasn't in one of these elegant hotels like the Metropole, but I was in, you know, kind of your average uh, mid-sized city hotel, but the same rhythms apply. You know, you'd have the same people staying, uh, coming and going. You would have the whole world pass through eventually. And I used to say it was like traveling with by standing still. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're, I think that being in a hotel is a relatively universal experience. And the Metropole, which which really does exist, was opened in 1905 before the Revolution, and was really the the largest and most luxurious hotel in in the country at the time. And it was really, as a grand hotel, not that different from the Plaza in New York or the Waldorf Astoria in New York or mm-hmm. the Paris, uh, sorry, the Ritz in Paris mm-hmm. or the Palace in San Francisco, which were all built around the same time. These grand hotels, so. I think the interesting thing is for Americans who don't know a lot about Russia, they will recognize the life of the hotel, kind of just as you say, mm-hmm. um, because it, the, the lobby in a grand hotel is is universal. We we every you can go to any hotel on a grand scale anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the United States, and the lobby has that same sort of feel of uh, the palm court and. You know, people drinking and reading newspapers and strangers coming and going, you know, that, that is, that's just a, a universal factor. One of the things I love that you did early on is, uh, you know, you moved him from his grand suite to this hundred square foot space of a closet that they put him in. And I wondered as you did that, did you ever mark out a hundred square feet and, and try to stay in that a while yourself? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I did I did think about that a little bit. You know, I, I work in a, in a in a small little sort of library slash office in my home in New York, uh, and I did kind of pace out that room 
which mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in, uh-huh. thinking, you know, how, how big was his room? Is it this size? Is it half this size? Is it a third of this size? And, <laughs> and yes, I, en- I ended up I ended up putting him in a room about the third of the size of, of the, you know, my office, um, mm-hmm. and, and did think about that. And I actually, you know, I pasted, I put, you know, I kind of thought, if there's a bed here and a bureau there, how much room have you got left to walk around? Because um, <laughs> yes. He does kind of go through uh, a series of humblings. You know, not mm-hmm. only is he getting under house arrest, but as you say, they put him in the small room, and they he, he, kind of, he goes through this sort of series of humblings, and and that's kind of the wall he's got to climb back up, as it were, mm-hmm. in in sort of a, a finding connection to people, a sense of purpose, despite the fact that the Bolsheviks have taken away his family, his possessions, um, and his way of life. Yeah, that was uh, really cruel of you because. You know, after the tribunal sentenced him to life in the hotel, essentially, I thought, well, you know, not the worst thing that could happen. He has a beautiful suite. (laughs) And then then he goes back and they immediately say, no, 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 no. You know, get what you can. And we're taking you up to the belfry. (laughs) Oh, man. Right. That was was brutal. (laughs) Now, did you think of that idea early on? I'm going to move him from this situation to this situation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I, I guess I should say, start first of all, that, um, you know, the premise for the whole book came out of, I was spending, uh, I spent a lot of time in hotels uh, as an investment professional. I, I wrote fiction as a kid, I wrote it in high school and college, but I, I was an investment professional for 20 years, and I would visit hotels for my firm for extended stays, you know, around the United States, in Europe. Uh-huh. And in one of those hotels, um, I, I re- arriving for the eighth year in a row, I recognized people from the previous year. You know, and I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, this, this is a pretty nice ho- hotel, but can you imagine if you had to live here? Yeah, that's true. And that kind of started the process. And um, I outlined very de- in great detail. So having had that notion in 2009, I, I, started, I didn't start writing the book until four years later. Mm. And over the course of that four years, on and off, I was writing and outlining greater and greater and greater detail, making many of the, the decisions like the one you, you just asked about, about, you know, where does he live and what does it look like? Who does he meet? You know, what are the events that happen? Because when I start writing the first page, I really want to have a very keen sense of the settings, the people, the themes, and all of the events in hand. Um, but, you know, I think probably one of the reasons that that I, you know, I put him up in the attic. I mean, there were multiple reasons, but one is that wasn't that uncommon for the nobility and the aristocracy who stayed in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly a significant portion of the aristocracy left Russia after the revolution. Some were, were killed or uh, imprisoned. That's true as well. But a significant portion of the aristocracy stayed in the country, and they were often allowed to actually stay in their ancestral homes, these mansions, but they were given one room instead of 30 uh. to move into. And then they would move in, <coughs> excuse me, 30 other families. So, you know, you know that is a, some sort of historical truth to that. They, they weren't in the hotel, but they were in their own mansion, mm-hmm. sort of in the smallest room on the top floor, um, sharing their ancestral home with you know, 20 other families. Well, one of the points that you make, uh, and you do this really well throughout the book, these little philosophical asides, I would call them, and one of the points you make I'd like to elaborate on is this notion that, uh, you know, the the people's revolutions that occur around the world are often about egalitarianism and so uh, and, and absolute equality for everybody. Nobody's better than anybody else. And yet, 
It doesn't take long for the natural human respect for hierarchy to be rearing its ugly head, if we call it yes. that. And so explain that. You, you had a particularly yeah, good paragraph I, on that. You know, you're, you're, you're right. That is, an, you know, certainly the book, uh, you know, sort of looks at that uh, because, and in, in, in historically speaking, uh, and again, this, as you say, this is a novel. It's not a work of history. But the background is that uh, only 10% of Russians, roughly, were members of the Communist Party during the you know the the twenties, thirties, and forties in Russia, um, and that's not because the other ninety percent didn't want to be communists. It's because they weren't. Al- because quite quickly, even though being a member of the party initially was sort of a, a, a mark of ideological purity, and um, it quickly became a gateway to privilege. Mm-hmm. If you were a member of the party, you had access to better apartment buildings, better stores with 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 more food in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, your kids got to go to better schools. So uh, even though, as you say, it was a proletarian revolution with the goal of making all things equal for everybody, quite naturally in human nature, the people in charge kind of quickly became an upper class. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they had flipped the class upside down. The mm-hmm. nobles were suddenly penniless and demeaned. Mm-hmm. And those who had, you know, been in the working class in some cases were suddenly uh, like royalty in mm-hmm. the new era. Yeah, I like the the line. I, I can't remember it exactly, but you said that uh, after a while, you know, the the people who were important would begin to say, "Well, you know, someone of my importance ought to have a, a bigger chair." <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't take long. Doesn't take long. I think yeah. The, the, in that section, you know, it's, it's almost I I I, I said that pomp is almost like a. A, a, a force out there, a, a living spirit, and Pomp will go and find the win, you know the winners of the revolution, and you know the Pomp doesn't care whether it's you know with the king or the or the new guy, but it's gonna it'll find the, it'll find the new king. Well, another uh, part of the book that I really love is just a, a couple of pages, but I think anybody who's worked in bureaucracy, you know, uh, will will love that particular part where you talk about how. The committee of the railroad union meets to look at their charter, and they spend you know hours uh, discussing one word and whether that one yeah. word is appropriate. That particular uh, uh, part of the book, I stopped. I read it out loud to my wife, and, and then she read it herself because she had just been through some uh, long committee meetings of various types, and she just loved it because it was so perfect. <laughs> Yeah, anybody who's sat on a committee, as you say, we've all, you know, wrestled over the, the, the three sentences in a charter statement, and it's amazing how much time you can spend on it. Um, and, and, and there's there's something uh, sort of ridiculous about that, and there's something grand about that. And, mm-hmm. and you kind of have in that scene both viewpoints. The Count is sort of makes fun of all the effort that they're spending on this, you know, choosing the word, but he's in the company of a nine-year-old girl who kind of is uh, the daughter of a Bolshevik executive and and is uh, very precocious. Oh, I love and her. And she, she sees it very differently. You know, she sort of finds the whole thing very exciting, you know, and um, and the counselor has to admit, oh, you know, maybe there is something exciting about this, too. Um, so, but yes, there, there's kind of always the, the two sides of the coin, as it were. Tell me about Nina. She is delightful. Yeah, Nina is a, 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 a nine-year-old girl who's living in the hotel when the count first is put under house arrest. And and she she's a, a key figure for him earlier in the early in the book because on the one hand he's he's a very optimistic person uh, genetically as it were uh, he, he is a person who's been raised to to never show defeat to an opponent and this helps him face his confinement but nonetheless he's feeling some malaise a little depressed 
Um, and his first lucky break is he meets this nine-year-old girl uh, who is the daughter of a Bolshevik, but in a nine-year-old girl way, she's fascinated by the fact that he was a count. And, you know, she wants to know all about the princesses he knew and whether he'd been to dances and balls. And, <laughs> um, and, and mo- most importantly, you know, she does not look at the hotel, even though she spends all her time there. She doesn't look at it as a, tr- a confined space. You know, she sees it as sort of an infinite rich, exciting place to explore. And she kind of gives him that insight that, you know, that the hotel, uh, if you approach it the right way, can fill you with, uh, you know, a sense of adventure. Um, and and he, he, that, that opens a doorway for him in rethinking it. And she, the, the book spans 30 years. And so you do get to see her come of age too, become more serious as a teenager and in her early 20s. And, um, and she leaves the hotel and you kind of learn what her life goes, how it changes. Um, and each of these kind of relationships, they become the new family for the Count, having you know lost the family he was raised with. Tell us about the rooms that she takes him to see, because that's a, a beautiful part of the book where he realizes that he has only seen, I don't know, uh, you know, three quarters of the hotel, and there's this whole magical yeah. backstory. Yes, he, he kind of he sees her sort of zipping by one morning while he's feeling sort of bored and depressed, and. He sort of, you know, where are you headed? And um, and it, and she kind of, after a moment, sort of secretly, kind of, you know, quietly admits where she's going. And and it turns out that she has become an aficionado of the, the hidden corners of the hotel. You know, she takes him to the basement where the furnace is. You know, uh, and as she says, it's a perfect place to, you know, to to, to destroy illicit love letters. <laughs> you know, and you know, she, she takes him to the, you know, the uh, the electrical room in the basement where you can you know, with a single switch, turn out all the lights in the ballroom, you know, which was perfect if you want to steal jewels. And, you know, so she takes him to all, the, all these little spots and, as I say, kind of opening up his eyes to just sort of the youthful sense of excitement that, that you can have. I, you know, I, I, the way I like to think of it is I don't think claustrophobia is a malady experienced by children. You know, that's a grown-up problem, you know. Children, they don't mind being in a small space. So, uh, because they have, they have such rich imaginations. Mm-hmm. Um but but the way that, it, that the count realizes it in, in his sort of walking with Nina is it's like being on a in the first class of uh, of an ocean liner, you know, where you kind of think you could have lived a very rich day and had full use of the boat because you gambled and sat at the captain's table and you know danced with a with a, with someone you've met, but all the while you know you've only seen twenty percent of the boat. You know, there's the engine room and. You know, the, the, the quarters where the staff sleep and, and the navigation rooms and there's all these other aspects to the boat that keep it moving. You just never even think about, and, you know, and kind of, again, part of his, his awareness. Nina has treated the hotel not as kind of in this just on the surface. She's been, you know, looking at the entire, uh, the entire building from basement to the attic. Yes, and the other thing that she does for him, and rather quickly, is because she gives him this tour and teaches him to think about doors behind doors and walls behind walls, that she quite literally is responsible for opening up his world. Yes, that's right. He he discovers, in essence, an unused room, partly mm-hmm. by uh, by her encouragement, and, and that radically changes his experience in the hotel, um, and because it becomes a secret space for him, and as he observes... If you take two rooms of the same size, and one is the one you're required to stay in, mm-hmm. and the other is the one that you found and kind of it's secret to you, 
your experience of those spaces is very different. You know, the one that you have to sit in feels very small. The one that you've gone and found in the secret can feel as big as your imagination allow it to be. And I love those points that you make rather consistently through it. There's this kind of philosophy of the human spirit, you might say. Uh, and there, there are paragraphs that make you stop and say, uh, I must read that again. There, there's something magical there. And, they, and that's what makes the book special is over and over again, you want to stop and reread a paragraph. I was going to say that I, I do, I mean, I, I like the way you, you put that, and I, and I do think a, sort of an aspect of the book, an important one, is, is an invitation to, partly to Americans, to some degree, to broaden their view of Russia during these decades. Uh, you know, we, we were all raised to recognize Russia in the 20s and 30s and 40s as an era of shortages, you know, including some famine years, of uh, purges and fear of arrest, of political and artistic oppression. And these are absolutely aspects to Russian life during that time. But but I but keep in, we have to keep in mind that the vast majority of Russians continue to fall in love, to get married, to have mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. to celebrate holidays with their family members, and, and fashion memories and attachments, and and have dreams, listen to music, appreciate art. Um, so so life is certainly even in a time of pressure like that. It it it, it can be very rich, and I think there is sort of a certain will to joy. In the human oh, yes. species, and, yes. and so part of the story is is yes, taking this individual who's in this greater context of of a challenged era and seeing how the individual finds you know opportunities for joy uh, given mm-hmm. his constraints. Oh, I was so impressed with the count's uh, magnificent elegance that he maintains. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of. Um, I forget the, the who wrote it, but I remember reading a short story a, a long time ago about a man in Africa, part of the British Empire, who was an administrator in, in a distant part of Africa. And he would receive the London Times, but he would receive it in, uh, you know, 30 papers at a time. Oh, right. And he would never open up all 30, no matter how much he wanted to know what happened the next day. He did them one at a time because he wanted to maintain <laughs> right. his schedule of civility. Yes, right. Uh, let me go to one uh, other thing. Is that we're we're quick running out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. The just uh, just a kind of general question about writers uh, of modern time. My question is this: that a lot of uh, our top modern writers went to college, went to uh, sometimes writing programs like the Iowa Writing Program, but the writers of a hundred years ago didn't do any of that. They were travelers. They, you know, your your Twains, et cetera, uh, Jack London, and although they were they were travelers. So how, yep. how do how we make this shift? Um, I don't, yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I don't, uh, I, I do personally, personally, I think that the most valuable uh thing that I've had for my own writing has been reading. Mm-hmm. You know, it hasn't been workshops or writing instructors, you know, which are all fine. They serve their purpose, you know, for, for, for many writers mm-hmm. or young writers. Um, but, I, you know, I think that at the end of the day, reading carefully um, and, as you say, experiencing life outside of the academy mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about the people you meet, thinking about the places you go to, writing down your own impressions of those things and fine-tuning those impressions that's really where you build your craft. I suppose that I think that the single best thing that a, a writing class can do for a young writer mm-hmm. is it's a deadline. 
it, it forces you to finish a story and hand it in, you know. Mm-hmm. And for young people, that can be very valuable in itself. You know, whatever inst- guidance you get or instruction, whatever feedback, just the fact that you finally sat down and finished the story mm-hmm. um, is a step in the right direction, you know. And, and I do think that a lot of, of young writers, that, that is a, an important and principal attraction to a program. Who do you like? Who do you read? Well, I, you know, yeah, you mentioned, you know, certainly one of my favorites earlier. In, I, mean, uh, I think probably my three favorite novels are A Hundred Years of Solitude, Oh yes, uh, War, and P- War and Peace, mm-hmm. and Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, because all three are so sweeping, so humane, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they, uh, they're, they're, they're humorous, they're exciting, they're, uh, they're thought-provoking, and they're all they're poetically written. Um, they're, they're very hard, you know, books to beat. And then, of course, you make the count, back to your book, A Gentleman in Moscow, you make the count a reader as well. Yes. And he was, he's in a 19th century, he was born in 1890, raised as an aristocrat. Um, and so, yes, he's, but his, his passion is for the, sort of the grand novels of the 19th century. That's right. And and I like that you work in, um, you know, the fact that he's read uh, Anna Karenina and he rereads books because uh, made me think of Oscar Wilde who said that there, a book isn't uh, worth reading the first time if it isn't worth rereading. That's right, and I I, mean, I, I, would, I agree with that sentiment entirely. Um, and I, he's also accounts a little bit of a sentimental figure, so you get the sense that mm-hmm. that he doesn't always read as a scholar. You know, he, he he's reading it because you know he's moved by the story and you know enjoys the the flight of fancy. And uh, uh, so yeah, he, he's he, he's. Uh, he's erudite in a way, but he's he's also just sort of a lover of life. Now, is it true that you uh, spent seven years writing a book and threw it away? I yeah. I well, I I did spend seven years writing a novel that I did not like in the end. I, I didn't throw it away. It is in a drawer, but you can have it. You can have it if you want it. You know? But yeah. so, but you know that that's I guess that's part of the training ground, right? Is you, you I had written many, many, many short stories um, mm-hmm. as a younger person. I set out to write my first novel, spent seven years doing it, and it was not uh, a success in my own eyes, mm-hmm. but I certainly learned a great deal from that process. What do you think uh, keeps people, because you know, you hear it all the time, people say, oh, I've got a novel in me. Uh, what, what is it that keeps people from writing that novel that's in them? Well, I, mean, I think most people, uh, most people, what what they mean is that they they've had interesting experiences or they've had you know th- fun things that happened to them. Every human being could mm-hmm. say that in essence. Um, but uh, you know to actually have the desire to sit down and write something is is a very different impulse and a, and a more rare one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it because it takes a lot of work. It, it, does. it, it takes uh, you have to be you know willing to isolate yourself. Uh, to it's, there's a great deal of drudgery in good writing mm-hmm. because you have to edit the same paragraph, you know, a hundred times yes. and, and, and be willing to show up and do it again. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, I think everybody has a richness of experience. Um, and I, but I, I think that, uh, you know, fewer people than, than people imagine have the real desire to actually sit down and, and translate their impressions into a narrative. That's it for beyond Texas for now. 
Get out and get you a copy of A Gentleman in Moscow today. Don't download it. This is the sort of book that you want to hold in your hands and sequester yourself in a hidden nook of your home to read, perhaps with a perfect cup of coffee or a fine wine resting at the ready nearby. It's the finest prescription that I can offer you for your greatest joy over the holidays. For Beyond Texas, I'm W.F. Strong. You can reach me anytime at WF Strong Podcast at gmail.com. Always love hearing from you.